You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 7th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Can COP27 accomplish what COPs 1 through 26 did not? The world waits to hear the American people speak in tomorrow's midterms and Italy's new government now has to deal with migration rather than merely complain about it. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Latika Burke and Barbara Serra will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll speak to Monocle's editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck ahead of Monocle's The Chiefs Summit beginning tomorrow in Dallas. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Latika Burke, journalist for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and by Barbara Serra, the international journalist and broadcaster. Hello to you both. Hello. Um, Barbara, we will be talking about Italy a bit later in the show, but you have been recently standing, as I understand it, in a disturbing queue. Uh, it was a disturbing queue and it was a hundred strong. It was outside Mussolini's tomb mm. because just last weekend was the 100-year anniversary, uh, the centenary of fascism effectively taking power in Italy. And as it would happen, the centenary fell just a few days after um, the most far-right government in Italy um, basically took office. The, the, with the secret of great comedy is timing. Yes, it was. Except it wasn't very funny. <laughs> uh, but it was interesting to see the dynamics there and actually there's a lot of theatrics behind it and it's interesting, I think, as well, what we call far-right and what is theatrical and what actually some of the dangers might be in Italy and elsewhere. Well, we will come back to that later, Latika. Have you stood any, in any queues of disturbing pilgrims of late? or No, I I must say, I've been having a rather wonderful, luxuriant, uh, if not decadent, last few days working in, uh, you know, quotation marks there because I've been ploughing through Simon Sebag Montefiore's The World History. And it's fantastic. I interviewed him on Friday um, and I'm looking forward to writing that piece. Like like just a total history of the world? It is a total history of the world from yay to the Ukraine war. Wow. wow. He so, must have had to leave a lot of stuff out, though. It's very fast paced. <laughs> uh, but uh, one really interesting part is like he completely skips the Tudors. He's completely bored of them and, and thinks that there's so many more interesting other things that were going on at the same time that we should take a look at. That's the fascinating part of his book. It takes you to Haiti, to Hawaii, to places that actually you don't get a lot of coverage in in world history. Okay, well, we will be starting with Egypt. Is that mentioned in the book? It must be. It, I was it's the me start. Trying to do Absolutely. a seamless link. There we Absolutely go. Absolutely is. Well, much like his book, we are starting in Egypt, uh, specifically in Sharm el Sheikh, where the COP27 climate summit is underway. One does not require an elephantine memory to recall a time when the United Kingdom was not going to send its Prime Minister. In the event, the UK has sent two, both the incumbent, as we go to air, Rishi Sunak, and his predecessor, but one, Boris Johnson. So while Monocle 24's contingent at COP27 is therefore vastly outnumbered by former occupants of 10 Downing Street, we are all about quality, not quantity. And I am joined from COP27 by Carlotta Ribello. Carlotta, um, our listeners last heard from you on the briefing. What has been going on this afternoon since then? 
Hi, Andrew. And just to let you know as well, the, co uh, the UK not only uh, you know has a former prime minister and a prime minister here, it also has two pavilions. There's the United Kingdom pavilion and the Scotland pavilion. And uh, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon was one of the very first through the door this morning, uh, I must say. But um, yes, since uh, the briefing, uh, we had quite a packed afternoon with four um, uh, round tables uh, close to the public between certain groups of leaders. These were divided in several themes, but the main outcome from one of them um, was this uh, early warnings for all. This is a new executive action plan um, by the United Nations, announced by Secretary General Antonio Guterres, uh, pledging already um, around uh, 3.1 billion US dollars. And this is cre to create a fund and a way, a system to be able to warn countries, particularly those more at risk, uh, when imminent natural disaster is about to hit. Um, and they've launched this incredible report that just 24 hours of notice uh, can cut the damage by up to 30% almost guarantee. So one of the many trends that has been coming out of this afternoon is this necessity to take climate events, hardest hardest climate events seriously um, and realize that actually, uh, you know, uh, the damage by the excess or the lack of water uh, really does impact more countries, uh, some countries more than others. And this is a way of uh, evening out uh, the tables there. You also covered COP26 for us in Glasgow last year. Apart from the, I'm sure, very obvious difference of the weather, does this conference feel noticeably different? Uh, yes, other than uh, it's 27 degrees here, so that to start with. But other than that, uh, COP26 had a lot of momentum to it throughout, uh, even when we were entering week two of negotiations and it seemed like countries weren't going to be able to agree um on you know the same terms there was still a lot of hope in the air and i feel like here at cop 27 there's a more realistic approach um there's um there's a clear um sense that cop 26 did not deliver exactly what was expected um and i think a lot of it has to do with its geography andrew i think it it's nice to be not in europe this time around the past five editions have been in europe um it last was in uh the african continent in morocco um for cop 22 um and being here just the fact that for this event the center of the world is here it changes your perspective. It forces you to, you know, um, countries who might be ignoring the obvious when it comes to climate, they can't do that when they're here faced with representatives of nations who are bearing the brunt of um, of climate inaction. And that was something that was actually um, very, uh, very uh, present in Antonio Guterres' opening speech, this idea that, um, for some countries, inaction is a luxury, but for others, even if they take action, the other countries' inaction is a death sentence. 
Carlotta Rabello in Sham El Sheikh, thank you very much for joining us. Now, one thing which has changed since the COP26 conference in Glasgow has been the punting of climate several rungs down the news agenda by Russia's rampage in Ukraine. However, as we've been learning, if frequently the hard way, this story does have a climate-related aspect, insofar that one extra detriment to Europe being so slow to wean itself off fossil fuels has been a reliance on energy supplied by Russia, which it turns out may not have had our best interests at heart. Um, Latika, do you think the war in Ukraine has served as some kind of wake-up call on that? We have heard statements today at COP27 from both uh, President Emmanuel Macron of France and Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister of the UK, suggesting as much. Yes, absolutely. I think one person who has done more to accelerate uh, a mass rapid transition to green energy is actually Vladimir Putin, and it's not by design. That doesn't mean we'll see or feel that in the immediate term, I actually think. We'll probably be more dependent on fossil fuels in the short term. But long term, you now have every government seized on how it can create its own energy independence, and it has to be clean and it has to be green. And that's not really an equation we were dealing with only five or I would dare say even the last COP. And if you look, um, what's really interesting, I think, is that around this time last year, you had a group, a rump in in the right in the UK trying to question net zero, say this is stupid, a bit like the Australian or Mm. US style debate on climate change. It never went anywhere. And one of the reasons I think why is because the Ukraine war has actually shown, well, even if you are on the side of, I think this climate science is, uh, to quote one of our former prime ministers, a bit <laughs> BS, um, which I don't believe the majority of British people are anyway, but even if you were of that view, there it has now been completely overtaken by the completely sensible and rational and obvious outcome of all this, which is everyone needs and wants and desires their own energy independence. And it's now a question of who can get there, how they can get there cheapest and fastest. This is clean energy, Barbara, as a national security imperative. Uh, I mean, it's it's ridiculous, obviously, and grotesque, really, to talk about the idea of there being any silver linings uh, to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But nevertheless, what we have learned in the last 10 months is that it can be done. And it's kind of infuriating that being the case that it wasn't done sooner. Uh, Germany, for example, this time last year was getting over half its gas from Russia, which means that Germany could presumably have weaned itself off Russian gas really pretty quickly any time it liked. Yeah, I mean, certainly in Europe, there have been a lot of questions asked. And it's interesting to see the attitude to nuclear as well. France, you know, being more reliant uh, on nuclear is sort of, you know, it, it, it's a very divisive issue and a huge division of of a nuclear between uh, Germany and France. I'll just pick up on something that your correspondent at COP mm. said, that in some countries you can ignore it more than others, and I totally agree with that. But even in Europe, this summer in London, we saw 40 degrees. Last summer, Sicily recorded the highest temperature ever recorded in Europe. And I just think, which I think was nearly 50 degrees. And so it's, I think... It's nearly mid-November and I haven't switched the heating on yet. Yeah, well, I was in Italy not that long ago, and in Sicily it's 30 degrees now, which mm. is just, you know, obviously... So it's coming home uh, everywhere, and it's having an impact. It's interesting to see how this COP in the global south is focusing on reparations um, and, and how that will go and how the debates will go. I have, I don't think, um, I caught a bit of Rishi Sunak and I don't think he mentioned it directly. Uh, so it's interesting to see how those debates will go. But, you know, if we're talking about conflict and climate, well, it's a lot of... Uh, 
places in Africa and other parts of the global south where the climate crisis is exacerbating a lot of conflicts and that in turn is causing mass displacement and migration. And so all these things are coming together whereby I don't think anyone in in the world actually can keep on ignoring climate change. And I would add, Andrew, on your point about there being one of the more perverse but better outcomes of this war in Ukraine, I would also draw a parallel here to what we saw after the COVID pandemic Mm. is that we had been talking for ages in the West about how reliant we were on China, how we'd outsourced all our manufacturing, how it was ruining our own economies and democracies. And then you saw immediately after the pandemic a bit of a wake-up call right across the world as they went, hang on, maybe it's not so much decoupling, but maybe we do need to rebalance where our critical supply lines are and have a look at how we can draw those up in, in the case of a contingency or a more aggressive hostile action. And sometimes it is, I think, only those huge dramatic shock uh, incidents that can create that level of coordinated re-examination. Uh, just to, to follow that up, Latika, could could we possibly, do you think, allow ourselves, and I'm thinking of ourselves as the, the Western nominally democratic world here, to become completely crazed with optimism and just decide we're going we're just going to stop dealing with unpleasant regimes for our energy. Either they can get with the program or we'll go somewhere else. No, I think that's wildly optimistic. I mean, look at at gas, for instance. We've gone from Russia to going begging cap in hand to Qatar, asking the Saudis. I mean, it's uh, one regime and on a a scale of of evil and very bad and, and not people we would ideally like to be dependent upon. But I do think the longer term project is one to be very optimistic about. And this is concentrated in everybody's minds. And that does make the political argument about where we subsidise these new technologies, how much we're willing to invest in research and development, much easier for governments in a way they weren't experiencing 10, 15 years ago. And just finally on this, Barbara, and it's a question we've discussed a lot on this programme, but do you think European voters are going to be in the mood this winter to appreciate these kind of niceties if the weather does turn into a proper winter and it does become cold and expensive. Um, Well, I think it depends where the European uh, voters are, but I do think that the impact of climate change is being felt in Europe now in a way that we just didn't even five, ten years ago. So, you know, this winter, well, anyone who goes skiing and, you know, if you live in parts of Europe, it's not necessarily, uh, where there are mountains, it's not necessarily such an elitist thing to do. And you're seeing the Alps not covered with snow and you're hearing of glaciers uh, breaking down. And then I just think people, it will hit home in a different way. And I think that the problem is that we need to change the way that we live, especially in the West, when it comes to air conditioning, when it comes to heating, when it comes a lot of the, to the, of the things that make our lives easier. And I think the more people see the impact of climate change on their doorstep, the more that is likely to happen. Barbara and Latika, thank you both very much for the moment. We will have more from you later in the show. Now, tomorrow, millions of Americans, though not nearly enough of them, will go to the polls in midterm elections that could see the Republican Party take control of the House of Representatives and or the Senate. This is no ordinary election, a fact evidenced by the presence of the Carter Center, normally an observer of elections in fragile democracy. The Carter Center has been tasked with monitoring the elections on the ground in Atlanta. Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Chermack sent us this report from the city. My name is Monica Childers and I'm a nonpartisan election observer for the Carter Center here in Atlanta. Where are we right now? We are at the Northwest Library, which is a library that is a polling station for early voting. How many of these have you been to already in, in this election cycle? 
been to about 15, but there are 35 early voting locations and another four outreach locations, and we've had folks going to all of them. Tell me a little about your process. You're holding a clipboard. I am. I'm holding a clipboard, so it has a checklist that has a whole set of questions that I'm going to answer both on the outside of the building and then as I walk in and then going into the voting space. How many other elections have you done before this? Yeah, I don't usually work as an election observer. I'm usually on the other side helping election administrators, so... This is my first election actually observing. What made you switch? It's not really a switch. It's all about helping people have confidence in the election. So it's really just what side of the house do you work on to do that? Okay. What's your first task? All right. So the first things we're going to look for are actually out here in the parking lot. So a lot of this is going to be about accessibility options and things like signage. So first, let's walk The Carter Center is a nonpartisan organization founded by the former U.S. President Jimmy Carter and has its headquarters right here in Atlanta. It was formally asked by officials in Fulton County, where Atlanta is based, to monitor the 2022 midterm elections. Monica Childers also has a few more ominous things on her checklist. So the next set of things we're going to check is just... Is anyone being intimidated? Are there signs that someone is guarding the polling location or trying to get people out? Is there tension or unrest? And as you said, it's pretty quiet this morning, so we're not seeing any of that. Haven't seen any of that yet this election, so we're excited about that. Have you seen passion? Absolutely. The lines of people that we saw in the first couple of days of early voting in Georgia especially were incredible, and everybody was very excited, which (laughs) isn't always what you see. Sometimes people are coming to vote because they think it's a duty and they've got to get it done, which is fine, but it's nice to see people excited too. The Carter Center monitors all kinds of elections around the world, usually in farther-flung countries where democracy is either just emerging or being undermined. Avery Davis-Roberts, who's coordinating the effort here in Fulton County, has previously monitored elections in Latin America, the Middle East, and Asia. So historically, the Carter Center has largely worked in countries that are sort of at a point of transition in their democratic practice and development. So either at a moment where, you know, it looks like they will be sort of making a transition towards democracy, maybe emerging from conflict, or in a moment when there's the risk of democratic backsliding. Davis Roberts says she did a lot of work in Egypt in 2011 in the aftermath of the Arab Spring a time of both hopeful democratic transition and a rather quick backsliding into autocracy. I ask her if she would have ever imagined doing the same kind of work here, in the United States. I think it's a little bit of a complicated answer for me, actually. I don't think of our observation in the United States as something that is necessarily symptomatic of democratic crisis, because I do think that this is something that should happen anyway, and I've long thought that. Now, when we see that our elections are, you know, increasingly the subject of mis- and disinformation and that there is just a real decrease in trust in electoral institutions, I think that that just heightens the need. But I have never thought that U.S. elections didn't need observation. I've always thought that they did. Whether the U.S. has needed monitoring in the past or not, it is clear that there's something different about this midterm election cycle. About half of the candidates on the Republican side of the aisle have openly questioned the results of the 2020 presidential election, despite dozens of court cases rejecting allegations of fraud brought by Donald Trump and his supporters. And on the Democratic side, there is a fear of voters being disenfranchised. 
Public trust in the process, and whether votes will be counted, is at a low on both ends of the political spectrum as a result. There is like a pall over elections, just like there is on many institutions where public trust has just eroded over time on something that used to be just went without saying that we'd have an election and candidates would accept the results and the public would lick their wounds and move on. This is Lydia Saad, head of social research at the polling agency Gallup. We have seen in our trends, you know, confidence that the votes, you know, will be accurately counted, cast and so forth. The U.S. is, of course, not the only country facing a crisis of trust. But Davis Roberts of the Carter Center says there is something that sets the U.S. apart at the moment. One of the things that has distinguished American elections in the last couple of years from other parts of the world is it's the fact that there has been mis and distrust in an election process that is really actually, you know, generally quite good, that has many safeguards and procedures in place that protect the vote and secure the vote while also allowing the process to be accessible. Whether or not the rhetoric matches reality, it is a hard time to be an election worker in the United States. Disinformation campaigns have sparked fears of violence on November 8th and its aftermath. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, was of course brutally attacked last month in his home in San Francisco. And beyond that, election officials have faced multiple threats across the United States. Recruiting election officials and poll workers has become harder as a result, Davis Roberts tells me, and it's also taking a toll on those who are staying in the job. We have been collaborating closely with our colleagues in the mental health program to pull together resources to really help support election officials during these very challenging times because we just know that it must be very difficult to be working in an environment where people are harassing you and threatening you and threatening your family members and that we need to be doing everything we can to support election officials as human beings and as whole human beings, not just their physical safety, but also their mental health and wellness. At the end of the day, there really is only one way you can try to counter those threats and lack of trust in this process, beyond booting out of office those who spread disinformation. And that is to do the work, ignore the threats and the noise, run the election as normal, and shine as open a light on the process as you possibly can. Before Monica Childers headed back into the Northern Atlanta Library to finish her job, I asked her how she feels about whether the rhetoric and lack of trust matches the reality on the ground. It doesn't, which I'm grateful for. I think anybody who comes to vote is going to see a really smooth, peaceful, fair process that they can actually trust. And so that's what we want. We want more people to get involved in the process because I think once you actually experience it, people do have a lot more trust in it. And some of the rhetoric seems to fall away in favor of what people actually see when they come. Chris Chermack in Atlanta. Thank you. Let's bring our panel, Barbara Serra and Latika Burke, back in. Um, Barbara, first of all, we heard last week President Joe Biden uh, trying to get people out to vote by presenting this as basically a referendum on democracy. Uh, I mean, he, he's trying to win an election, obviously, but is, is, that a, is that a reach or is that actually more or less what's on the table uh, well, here? Well, it's a strange message to send, isn't it, if you're part of the democratic process, but you're saying if you vote for the other side, it means that it's not democracy. So it's, it's a strange message 
message um, right there. I mean, look, I think a third of the Republican candidates still believe that the election, the last election, was rigged and was stolen. So I think there's an issue of truth. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about the far right or the extreme right, radical right in, you know, regarding um, the regarding Italy and various European elections. I think when we talk about the far right, we have to sort of separate. There are some things where it comes to policies that liberals may not like, Mm. but, you know, and that we could consider far right on immigration or the rights of minorities. But then there's the issue of incompatibility with democracy. And I think that's what we're seeing in the United States now. So the policies of the Republicans may be unpalatable to many of us, you know, from from abortion and, and on from there. But it's the issue that you're seeing now in the United States, which is the incompatibility with democracy. And if you get to a situation where a lot of governors get voted in who are incredibly loyal to Trump, now I don't think all Republicans are. I think for a lot of them, it is still issue-based. But mm. there is obviously a wing of the party that will just follow him blindly. And at that point, come the proper election in two years' time, if you have governors that would sort of just certify uh, results just to please him or to push through a result that they would want, then I think you have a huge issue. And not just in the West, uh, not just in the U.S., of course, but, you know, in the West in, in general, they are the, the sort of leaders of liberal democracies, aren't they? Latika, uh, the scenario that, that Barbara raises there is exactly the nightmare one, which is that some state governor or secretary of state who is elected tomorrow refuses two years from now to certify a state's votes against a Republican candidate. That would prompt uh, an absolutely extraordinary crisis. And at that level, President Biden probably does have half a point. But if those are the stakes in play, why don't more people care? Because usually at midterms, more than half the country doesn't vote. Um, and even given those stakes, it's probable that tomorrow more than half of people who could vote just simply won't bother. Well, I mean, non-compulsory voting is, a, I think, a very valued and cherished right in, in the United States. I mean, Andrew, you and I, of course, come from a country where it's compulsory to vote. You get a big stonking fine um, if you don't. And, and if you do, you turn up and you get a democracy sausage sizzle. Not so bad for the, uh, not so good for the non-meat eaters. But more seriously, um, I, I think polarisation is a very big answer to your question. And I really do wonder in the United States if they will ever, if we can ever dream or hope of seeing a third way through where the Republicans and the Democrats who've completely at times uh, lost and polarised their own bases um, actually experience a Macron-style challenge in the centre and and maybe that can heal American politics. I'm not very optimistic about that at all. Um, But just going back to the kind of point about what Barbara was saying too. I mean, if you substituted an African country's name Mm -hmm. here for the United States, we would all be sitting and wondering if the outcome was going to be honoured, if it was going to be followed by political violence. I read today in the Times that intelligence agencies are actually already warning that there could be political violence following the results of, of some of these votes. I mean, it's not so long ago that I was writing a story about the Marlborough Accords, which was getting the political candidates in Kenya <laughs> to come to London to say in front of a Western audience, we will uphold the verdict of the voters and instruct our followers not to be violent if we don't like the outcome. I mean, who would have thought that the great United States of America 
would be a substitute for that in this day and age. Uh, Barbara, despite all this, uh, a lot of forecasts are that the Republicans will take the House of Representatives back and possibly the Senate as well. If we think about foreign policy in particular, what would the practical upshot be? I mean, obviously, Uh, this is still directed by the president who can still veto whatever lands on his desk from Congress. But nonetheless, it doesn't make life easy. No, it doesn't. And I suppose the thing that would impact most of us is the issue of Ukraine. And it would be interesting to see where they would go when it comes to supporting Ukraine or the continued support of Ukraine uh, with arms. And again, we shouldn't forget that the sort of support, especially among public opinion in continental Europe, to continue supporting Ukraine is not quite as solid and compact as, for example, it is certainly Mm. in the United Kingdom. The leaders do, uh, but not so much public opinion uh, for a variety of reasons and some of them historical. So I think that's the kind of thing that we should look at when it comes to foreign policy. But it's interesting what you said about voter apathy. I mean, we see that everywhere, don't we? We, um, in, in all sorts of elections, maybe not quite to the level of the midterms. And I think the truth is that a lot of people just don't think that whatever they vote for will make any difference to their lives. And when we talk about the risks to democracy, actually, that's a crucial one, maybe more than an insurrection on Capitol Hill. But if people think that when they go and cast their ballot, it doesn't make any difference, then why on earth would they? And I think, I mean, certainly the European dynamic is slightly different. But in European countries, you think, well, you know, that can't be done because of the EU and that can't be done done because of the financial markets and that can be done because of uh, you know international legislation well if people think that their vote doesn't have an impact then they wouldn't go and that you know it's never really talked about but that in itself is a threat to democracy because it stops people expressing their view because they don't think it matters well that does bring us along to Italy and if there is one key thing which has underpinned the success of populist blowhards on both sides of the Atlantic it is an appreciation of the wretched truth that politicians rarely lose votes by beating up on immigrants New Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney is at least in this respect governing as she campaigned. Italy is refusing to disembark migrants from four foreign flagged rescue ships aside from those identified as vulnerable. However, the captain of one German registered ship is complicating matters somewhat by refusing to leave the dock in Catania until his 35 remaining passengers are allowed off. Um, Barbara, this this sort of follows up what we were just talking about, about the particular portions of an electorate that get uh, especially wound up about this sort of thing. This stand that Maloney is taking, do you think it's popular with Italians generally or just with enough of her voters? I think a lot of people are very uncomfortable with the moral responsibility that you have. I mean, yes, you are disembarking sort of children and then women and vulnerable people, but ultimately it's on the conscience of the country mm. what happens to to you know to the remaining uh, people on these boats. In I don't want to say the phrase in Meloni's defence, but just to kind of give a, a, a sort of wider context of the way it plays in Italy as well. You know, the Italians, like most of the Southern European countries, feel that they've kind of been abandoned by the rest of mm. Europe. And, you know, I mean, you said both sides of the Atlantic. Well, my goodness, immigration has been quite the issue both sides of the channel, hasn't it, over mm-hmm. the past few weeks? And there's a lot of language that we're hearing here that I've been hearing for years in Italy, hence, you know, the word invasion being one. Uh, and so the issue that a lot of the southern, you know, EU countries will have is that, well, obviously, they're the first port port of call um, for, um, for a lot of the migrant ships. And so a lot of these NGO boats, for example, this one is registered in Germany. 
And the Italian government says, well, why doesn't Germany accept that they will process, you know, the 35 or however many migrants are left? So I think even for people that aren't necessarily opposed to immigration in Italy, they would say that there is something that doesn't work in the EU policy. And my goodness, there is something that doesn't work in the EU policy. We all know that. The system isn't working at a European uh, wide level. But obviously, immigration is easy, isn't it? Because it's easier for her to, you know, a few weeks in to get approval doing this than to deal with the economy, mm-hmm. which is obviously a nightmare. And that, I think, is true everywhere. Um, Latika, it's a familiar refrain to Australians, certainly not just the Italian example, but what we've been hearing from the government of the United Kingdom in the last few weeks. Does it strike you that these countries, in taking the hard line, or at least this is how it often seems to me, they're trying to implement the Australia policy, but they don't have Australia's geography? Uh, you, you can't it, it, you can't transplant the two. It's not going to work. No, that's right. The Europe-wide solution has to be something that everybody agrees on and can probably be only done by lots of migrant swap deals. For instance, the one you're seeing with Albania, there's a suggestion from one of our former foreign ministers, Alexander Downer, that how the British deal with their boats crisis is actually disembark uh, the migrants off the boats and drive them back with France's permission to France. Now, that would obviously require a collaboration that the Australian solution, which was literally to go and get these asylum seeker boats in international waters, turf them into life boats, give them enough fuel to get back to Indonesia and send them on their way, uh, just won't work in in Europe and in a European context. But one thing I will say that is similar, and I have a great fear, it's almost a bit PTSD watching this debate play out in the UK, is that all the similar arguments are being made from the left about uh, people needing to be kind and tolerant and compassionate. And of course, everybody wants to be very kind to refugees. But when you see an abuse of a system Mm. and you see a government waking up to just how perilous this is in the community's mind, uh, this can lead to really diabolical politics. And my fear for the UK particularly is that this has not been a massive issue. It could very easily become a massive issue ahead of the next election that would breathe life back into a UKIP, uh, a Farage-style party that's been neutralised since Brexit. And if the mainstream parties don't get a grip on it, which I'm not seeing any evidence from Labor that they are wanting to demonstrate the hard-headedness that will be required here, uh, this could lead to a really, really toxic environment here. I mean, you know, you say it's been neutralised, the whole UKIP phenomenon, but actually I think it's been absorbed by the Conservative Party. And again, you know, when we hear the Home Secretary use words like invasion, you know, if we heard that from the Italian government or Marine Le Pen in France or whoever, we would call it far right. You know, we just don't use that phrase when it comes to the UK, but there are some policies and some language that is obviously that. And and you're right. I think, you know, in a way, the migration issue has been resolved when it comes to European citizens like myself. You know, now it's a lot harder for us to come to the UK, but, but it will raise its head again. And I think it's becoming, you know, it's in, in, in the mainstream now, that kind of language in the way it just wasn't five years ago, even. Uh, just a final quick thought on this, Latika. And this is, <clears throat> this has always been my own possibly somewhat optimistic and naive view of these scenarios is that what a plurality of the population object to isn't immigration or indeed immigrants. It's the perception of, of anarchy, that there, there's there's no process, that there's no structure, that nobody's in charge of this. But they also run one of the highest skilled migration mm. programs. And one of the uh, centre-right prime ministers that that occurred under John Howard was very famous for being tough on illegal migration, but very quietly 
big and pro-legal uh, skilled migration. So you actually can have those duopolies exist. And I think there's a bit of a reckoning that the British public needs to have with itself. On one hand, you can't be complaining that everything is going up because there's no one here to clean your houses and serve you your coffees and look after you in the NHS and in an aged care home. But on the other hand, saying, gee, I'd do anything to cut migration to really, really low levels. Those things are not compatible. And if the British want a certain style of life at a cost uh, that they are used to, they are going to have to be real about where their immigration comes from. Latika Burke and Barbara Sarah, thank you both very much for joining us. Finally, on today's show, we will be going shortly to Dallas to talk about Monocle's The Chiefs Summit. Watch out for Monocle Films. Since launch, Monocle's eagle-eyed filmmakers and journalists have cut and framed visually vivid dispatches and documentaries from all corners of the globe, from one-on-one interviews to industry reports and journeys where you won't believe your eyes. With hundreds of films available now and for free at monocle.com slash film, there's never been more to see. Let's roll. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. And finally, Monocle's global business summit, The Chiefs, opens tomorrow in Dallas, from where I'm joined by Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. Um, Andrew, greetings from London. What does it all look like ahead of kickoff tomorrow? Uh, I think it looks okay. <laughs> there's, still quite a lot, there's still quite a lot, as always, to do at this, this stage. Uh, we'll have a, a, a run-through. We'll be meeting all the, the, the speakers beforehand. There's a, a speaker's dinner to make sure that everybody knows what's expected of them when they're on stage. We're, we're, we're quite drill sergeants about these things. So when it all starts tomorrow, what, what can the lucky ticket holders expect? Well, look, it, it's, it's an event that we do to look at leadership, and that's leadership in every form you can imagine. So that's leadership for your, your city, for leadership for your community, but also leadership, obviously, within the likes of business and entrepreneurship. So we have some amazing people stepping up on stage, looking at everything from the future of retail. So Neiman Marcus, the famous department store, is, is, is based here, is anchored here in Dallas. Uh, the, the Marcus family uh, hail from the, this part of Texas. A guy called Sid Mashburn on the other side is uh, going to come and talk about his uh, fashion business, which is really kind of Southern style. But you, you'll find a Sid Mashburn in Houston. You, there's, there's one not far from where I'm standing here at the moment. But we're also going to look at uh, what needs to happen in, in the world of hospitality, what's, what needs to happen in global politics, and also how you kind of narrate the story of a big American city, especially at this interesting time with the midterm and with all the things happening in American cities. So we'll have um, Catrice Hardy, who's the, the editor of the, the Dallas Morning News. She'll be on stage as well talking about her role as well. So it's going to be a, a really fascinating, inspiring day. I mean, obviously, the last couple of years have been an immense challenge for people in leadership roles in all kinds of organisations. Are you expecting that to be a recurring theme, what we might have learned from the pandemic and the, well, hopefully post-pandemic period? Yeah, so, for example, you know, the woman who runs Soul Cycle is coming on stage. Now, when you think about Soul Cycle, it's, it's, it's an amazing business, but all of these health businesses, they had some ups and downs, navigating whether they were like like SoulCycle, a, a business that you, you was based on you going into a gym, getting on a bicycle, working out together in a community. 
So these places were all shuttered throughout the, the, the period of the pandemic. So what's happening now? We want to hear from her about what do people want from their health and fitness regimes? What are they, how are people re-engaging with the world of work? And especially in the U.S., where you know, in big cities like San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, you're seeing a real kind of reluctance to go back to the ways of old, to just get on the morning commute. So many of these people just are not around at the same times in the same places as they were before. So we're also interested to see how industries and how businesses have adapted, hopefully successfully, to all of those challenges. Um, we should talk a bit about the location. Why did we settle on Dallas for this year's summit? Well, oddly, we haven't done that much in the US in the way of big events, like, like big conferences. And we had a, a discussion over recent months with um, a, an interesting sponsor here, the Todd family, who uh, are in real estate, they're trying to develop the city there. It's really interesting here when you wander around, like every building has somebody's name on it because it's a world of philanthropy. It's not all done by City Hall. It's not all done by the state. So it's, it's these influential players who help make cities here. So they were interested to do something that would bring people to hopefully reset a little bit of the image about Dallas. And you know, it's a city like every city that's got lots of challenges on its plates. You, you, you wander around. There are a lot of parking lots. There are a, it's a, a car very dominated, uh, uh, sorry, a city very dominated by the car. But there are also interesting things going on. So we want to also, this isn't a city conference, but we do want to tell the story of this city and to inspire people a little bit to think afresh about what's going on here. At a time when, you know, politics are, are complicated, when there's a huge debate about abortion, when, you know, the, the, the security issue is, is still a big thing. So it, it's a, a really tough moment to do it. But I think that Monocle has the ability to bring people together to have these kind of level-headed conversations. Well, just finally, on the subject of that, that weird moment in modern American history that this summit opens on, are, are there contingencies in place for people to uh, stay up panicking about the midterm returns in a, in a convivial setting? There's a big bar. <laughs> we will be serving drinks. <laughs> and I think, there's going to be, I think it's going to be fascinating. You know, just wandering around, you, 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 you see all the, the candidates' names staked out on the lawn. But of course, you know, we're watching the, the, you know, the, the, the big votes uh, from overseas. But when you're here, you realize that people are voting for judges. They're voting for all sorts of, of local um, positions as well. And it's ferocious watching the political advertising, everybody decrying each other. So I think it's going to be quite a punchy time here in Texas, but also elsewhere in the U.S. So it's going to be fascinating to be right here as all those results come in. Andrew Tuck, thank you for joining us. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Latika Burke and Barbara Serra, also to Carlotta Ribello and Sharmel Sheikh and Chris Chermak in Atlanta. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.